0: So let's begin with the lecture first. The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in 100,000 myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dharma. Homage to the Sangha. So lovely to see you all today on this lovely warm morning. Um, So today I'm, I'm going to talk about a little bit about Achalanatha Bodhisattva, and also I think primarily on not feeding the hindrances. So we've just had this festival for Achalanatha Bodhisattva, and I know that a number of us are. I would say, particularly fond of him. The Chalanatha is also known um, as the immovable one, um, and he does have many names in the Buddhist world. He's revered particularly in Japanese and in Vajrayana Buddhism, and also goes by the names Fudo Myo'o, Mahaviruchana, Maharya, Achala, Vidyaraja, (laughs) And in Japanese, he's known by several other names. And uh, these names translate as, I love these, Great Wrathful King, the Immovable Noble One, Immovable Servant of Infinite Strength and Divine Powers, Great Awesome Immovable One of Great Power, and Great Immovable King Smasher of Obstacles. (laughs) I like that. So today I'd like to look at how, in particular, a Chalanatha's example can help us to sit still amidst the arising of greed, anger, um, and ignorance or delusion, and in the difficult uh, mental states and conditions that we find ourselves in. I'd also like to talk about this concept of feeding the hindrances that the Buddha spoke about And in particular, you know, how we can apply this teaching when faced with irritation and ill will, I think many of us know about that, restlessness and anxiety and uncertainty. So you might have noticed that unlike, you know, some of the other bodhisattvas of our tradition, you know, take Avalokiteshvara, for example. A Chalanatha isn't dressed in fine robes or wearing an ornate crown or jewels or sitting on a lotus pedestal. You know, I think he looks a little bit more rough-hewn. In pictures, his body is red, yellow, black, or blue, traditionally. Sometimes you might see his hair arranged in seven knots. So these seven knots denote the seven kinds of delusions, but there's one knot hanging down which represents his loving kindness for all sentient beings. Of course, he sits upon a large rock which represents his immovability, and there are flames around him which signify the burning up of delusions and the sitting still in all conditions. In his right hand, he holds the sword of wisdom to cut through all delusion, and in his left hand, he holds the rope of the precepts. I learned something this week when I was doing a bit of reading about a chalanatha that his sharp protrude, protruding teeth also have significance. So you'll notice that the right tooth that protrudes upward has what it signifies is. The knowledge and compassion that strike fear in the gods and demons who dwell in the realms above the earth. And the left tooth that protrudes downwards signifies the compassion that influences and attracts beings in the lower realms. And finally, uh, the other thing is I, I found a lovely description of Ch- Chalanatha's virtue. So it said, um, it is to help sentient beings to attain their aim of the immovability of the bodhicitta, to drive away evil and attract good, to serve beings and help them out of their difficulties. So you know, I think he might come across you know, as this kind of wrathful um, you know, being, bodhisattva, but actually there's compassion there which underlies it all. So when I, when I look at a Chalanatha, I do find it inspiring, you know, seeing um, his ability and his willingness to sit still within any and all conditions. So the conditions of our body, like pain, sensation of hot and cold, you know racing heart, hunger, illness, loss of our senses and faculties, and of course, the myriad conditions of our mind, um, grief, sorrow disgrace, jealousy, despair, and, of course, greed, anger, and ignorance, just to name a few. I've talked about this a little bit before. When I first came to training, I would definitely say that my life was a bit of a mess. You know, I, I, I found myself in the middle of a lot of suffering mostly due to difficult mind states. And I would say, you know, a good mix of greed, anger, and delusion. And I, I didn't really know what to do about it. You know, I just knew that I needed to do something different um, you know, than, than what I was already doing. We say a lot in Soto Zen that some people come to training through the door of suffering, you know, seeking help, and others come through the door of wisdom. Maybe seeking enlightenment or seeking that which is greater. And it definitely came through the door of suffering. That's very clear to me. And I wouldn't have been of this opinion, maybe at the time. But I see now that the suffering I was experiencing, it kind of kicked me through the door, you know, a door that I might not have found, you know, the door of training, Um, if conditions had been better or different or otherwise. The thing that all, that all people have in common with a Chalanatha is this place within from which we cannot be moved. A place that's not touched by pain or grief and sorrow, anger, greed, jealousy, by any of it. And it, it might not seem like this in the beginning, but it is so. And maybe some of us don't quite know this for ourselves But I know that when we continue to train, we can know this for ourselves through and through. So here's the part where I tell you a little story. Some of you might have heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Five years ago, I was in the hospital for surgery and I'd had general anesthesia. I remember waking up and I was hyperventilating which if, if you've ever experienced, is kind of disorienting. Disorienting. Um, and I was in a tremendous amount of pain. There were these alarms going off, so, nee, 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 and it was like tied up in all these tubes and things. And then, of course, the drugs from the anesthesia were affecting my mind, so I was all confused, and you know, with the alarms going on and the pain, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and... You know, there's this this basic sense of kind of system overload, and my immediate thought was, I don't want this. I don't want any of this, and, you know, make it stop, right? What was so interesting, though, amidst all of this, is that there, something within told me that all I needed to do was to put my hands in gasho. And even though I was all kind of, like, tied up and stuff, and I couldn't really do it... So physically, I couldn't do it, but in my mind, I could make a show and somehow, just in that kind of just slight turning towards you know that stillness that which is greater, it completely turned the situation around so the pain didn't stop the alarms were still blaring, I was still tied up, and my mind was still all crazy but actually it, it didn't it didn't really matter anymore because just that turning to something greater and that taking refuge in that still place within. And it made all the difference. And I'm and I was so grateful for it. And maybe we don't always know this immovable place, you know, when things are going well in our life. But I I like to say that when push comes to shove and the conditions difficult, you know, we have this opportunity to make gashot, to find that still place within. And it's the difficulty that provides us with this opportunity. You know, my situation in the hospital wasn't special in some way. It was just, you know, an ordinary, everyday situation. Because that immovable one exists within us all. Of course, we still have to train with the greed, anger, and delusion of everyday life that occurs, you know, in our interactions, whether we're here at the monastery while we're on retreat, or we're at home, or the office, or visiting in-laws for Thanksgiving, or whatever it is, or we're in line at the grocery store, or in traffic, you know, we can't get away from it. I could do multiple talks on training with greed, anger, and delusion. I mean, I think there could be endless talks on that. But today in particular, I'm just going to focus on some of the mental hindrances that the Buddha spoke on uh, in the Ahara Sutra as it occurs in daily life. So in the food discourse, also known as the Ahara Sutra, the Buddha gives teaching on what he calls the feeding and starving of the five hindrances as well as teaching on the seven factors for awakening. I know we talk a lot about the five hindrances, but just to recap, these are the five major obstacles that the Buddha spoke about, you know, obstacles to spiritual progress. So these are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse or anxiety and doubt, sometimes called uncertainty. So today I'm going to speak, I think, primarily on ill will and a little bit on the restlessness, anxiety, uncertainty aspects as well. Some of you will know that I was the cook uh, here for four and a half years before Reverend Allard took over. And uh, I would say that the opportunities for irritation and the arising of ill will were endless. <laughs> so, you know, when I was reflecting on my time in the kitchen, it wasn't that I was just there full of ill will and irritation all the time. But, of course, things come up, right? Um, you know, I can think of you know countless times when the, the door to the kitchen would be left wide open and it would be like a really cold day and there was nobody around. And I'd be like... Or maybe, you know, this used to drive me nuts. We'd have two types of salad dressing. We'd have a vinaigrette and we'd have a creamy one. Somebody would take a ladle of the creamy dressing and then they'd put it back into the vinaigrette bin. And it used to just drive me nuts. <laughs> I mean, that was irritating for me. I just, like, ugh. <laughs> so, and then, of course, just like probably you find at home, you know, there was the jug of milk that gets put back in the fridge with one teaspoon of milk left in it. So it's no different, really, um, you know, than what you might find at home. And it always seemed to be like that. So, you know, I wasn't full of ill will all the time. Actually, it was a really helpful period of time for me to be in the kitchen, really a rich ground for training. And I really do like to cook um, and serve the community in that way. But, you know, what I found was that when something like that happened, you know, like with the salad dressing if I allowed my mind to go to that place of irritation, it always seemed to snowball from there. So in the grand scheme of things, of course, the salad dressing mix-up or the teaspoon of milk, you know, in the jug, they're not a problem, but sometimes I allowed them to become a problem. And I see now how, you know, irritation is really a slippery slope when we allow ourselves to become irritated by things, you know, we latch onto that irritation. And it always seems to build on that. So suddenly this, you know, this small thing that's gotten under our skin, um, it can become a gateway to ill will, to thinking poorly of others, to resentment, and sometimes even anger. And the space of time, you know, between latching onto that irritation and the arising of Ill, Ill will can actually be pretty quick, you know. We might justify it in our mind, you know, with things like, how could they not know, or how could they not see that, right? And, you know, you, you tend to kind of, like, get those questions in your mind. But somehow, you know, the justification for the irritation, it always lands, you know, in the lap of the so-called perpetrator, Right. So coming back to the Hara Sutra, the Buddha says, and what is the food for the arising of unarisen ill will or for the growth and increase of ill will once it has arisen? There is the theme of irritation to foster inappropriate attention to it. This is the food for the arising of unarisen ill will or for the growth and increase of ill will once it has arisen. So the Buddha makes the point here that fostering inappropriate attention to irritation is the gateway to ill will, both risen and unrisen. The slippery slope, you know, we attach to it, we grasp after it, and all of a sudden we're sliding down into, you know, that valley of ill will. I think irritation can seem like such a minor form of ill will. Sometimes we might barely even notice that it's there in the background. But the Buddha makes the point here you know, that it's deeply significant. When we allow these irritations to go unnoticed, or we put energy into them, we feed them, as the sutra says, this is the food for the arising of unarisen ill will, or for the growth and increase of ill will once it has arisen. That's what the Buddha said. In the introduction to the scripture of Brahmas Net, there's this lovely line, and I always seem to be quoting it every time I do a Dharma talk. But it goes, Even though drops of water are minute, they gradually fill a large container you can take that, you know, both as, you know, when we're cultivating wholesome activity or wholesome thoughts, and you can also take it on the other side. You know, the small things of life, the petty irritations, you know, the greed for the last piece of cake, um, could be conspiracy theories that we invest in. All of these things matter deeply. So we might notice, you know, certainly our big blow-ups at people, and we might feel terrible for it afterwards. But I think that the small irritations of life absolutely require our attention. You know, if we have any hope of shifting our tendencies towards anger and ill-will, we have to start with the small irritations of life. In a section of the Ahara Sutra called Starving the Hindrances, the Buddha says, And what is lack of food for the arising of unarisen ill will or for the growth and increase of ill will once it has arisen? There is awareness released through goodwill, compassion, sympathetic joy, or equanimity. To foster appropriate attention to that, this is lack of food for the arising of unarisen ill will or for the growth and increase of ill will once it has arisen. In other words, we can turn our attention from the irritating things of life that spark ill will and focus instead on the, on the freedom that we experience when we cultivate goodwill, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity instead. So this could actually be as simple as bringing our mind to some, you know, bring our mind to some of the good qualities of someone you know, whom you're feeling irritation towards. Maybe think of their generosity or their sense of humor. Or, you know, if you really have difficulty with a person, are they kind to their animals? That's something that we can look at. You know, anything that we can redirect our minds, you know, from this place of irritation. So, continuing on from ill will, the Buddha addresses restlessness and anxiety, something that, you know, I think was as much of a problem you know, during the time of the Buddha as it is now. So the Buddha says, And what is the food for the arising of unarisen restlessness and anxiety, or for the growth and increase of restlessness and anxiety once it has arisen? There is non-stillness of awareness to foster inappropriate attention to that. This is the food for the arising of unarisen restlessness and anxiety. So essentially, you know, the Buddha is saying here um, just that restlessness and anxiety are fed by inappropriate attention to that which isn't still. So maybe the racing thoughts, um, you know, whatever it is that's going on in our mind that's kind of rolling around in there. And starved by appropriate attention to any kernel of stillness that is present so it's up to us you know, whether we latch onto the racing thoughts and anxiety or we can redirect our efforts to being still. So I think practically speaking, drawing out this stillness could mean just sitting in formal meditation for a few minutes if we can. It could be meditating you know, during a red light if you're really angry in traffic. Just, you know, putting your hands, you know, in the meditation mudra. If it's just for a minute. It could also mean reciting a mantra, you know, if you find that helpful. Um, Using a mala. You know, I've got two on today. So any skillful and perceptual means we have of bringing, you know, ourselves back to that innate stillness that's inside. Of course, for me in the hospital, that was just putting my hands in gasho. So lastly, the Buddha addresses the issue of uncertainty. You know, something I think many people latch on to and you know don't know how to deal with in their lives. The Buddha says, and what is the food for the arising of unarisen uncertainty, or for the growth and increase of uncertainty once it has arisen? He says, there are phenomena that act as a foothold for uncertainty. To foster inappropriate attention to them, this is the food for the arising of unarisen uncertainty, you know, as it goes. So what does the Buddha mean here? You know, with uncertainty. Well, when we go down this path and we give attention to topics that are just conjecture, you know, we feed them, uh, we make them the object maybe of worry or perhaps even fascination, and they gain a toehold in our lives. And as a remedy to this, the Buddha cites cultivating appropriate attention to mental qualities. He says, this is lack of food for the arising of unrisen uncertainty or for the growth and increase of uncertainty once it has arisen. So practically speaking, what does this mean? So it can be simply being mindful of what we're cultivating amidst the uncertainty. You know, the sutras pointing primarily to doubt and uncertainty about the Buddhist teachings, and this could manifest in many ways in our life. You know, are we latching onto ideas? You know, we've heard, you know, people talk about maybe that karma doesn't matter, um, or that there's no such thing as rebirth, and sometimes we can get really kind of wrapped up in, in these types of um, things in our mind maybe we're not sure about the teachings you know from one tradition so we pick and choose the teachings we like from one tradition and another and it can be anything really the buddha is pointing out here that none of these are ultimately helpful in the situation starving uncertainty comes down to being aware of what's going on in the mind seeing the, you know, the arising of these things and ultimately coming back to that still place within. So if we have a lot of irritation or ill will that arises in our life, or perhaps we find ourselves forever stuck in some state of anxiety or uncertainty, you know, I think that judging ourselves for it is not helpful. When these things arise in our lives, this is a gentle and compassionate, you know, pointing to something that needs our attention, an opportunity, you know, to work on something that maybe we've given a bit too much food in the past, a chance really, you know, for these hindrances in our training to go on a diet. But just because irritation, anxiety, or uncertainty arises, you know, it it doesn't make us bad people. You know, if it wasn't the arising of this, it would be something else because we're all training with something. When irritation and ill will, anxiety or uncertainty or really any difficult mind state arises or is about to arise, we have the ability to be still, to find that still place within, no matter the situation. You know, we do have a choice, when we can turn the mind to compassion both for ourselves and the other person you know we find irritating for example and see just see you know how these things feed you know these difficult mind states we begin to find some freedom from these hindrances because there's no situation in which that rock of immovability you know that a Chalanatha sits upon, you know, even if it's just a little sliver, there's no situation in which it's not present for us. With right effort, the deepening of our meditation, and the simple practice of bringing our mind back to what we're doing, we can come to know that immovable place for ourselves. Thank you.